The question I've learned to ask is, what do I need to know about this town that I can't see by just driving downtown? And it's amazing what answers you'll get and, and the kind of, they look at you like, well, thank you for realizing there's more than our abandoned stores or crappy streets. Welcome to Deviate with Rolf Potts. Today's episode is about how to travel to rural places, be they close to where you live or on the other side of the world. Most world travelers tend to be urban or suburban people without a lot of experience in rural places, and this can create certain kinds of blind spots and unintended prejudices when we travel into places that aren't urban or suburban. Joining me in this conversation is Marcy Penner, who's one of the most experienced guidebook writers in my own home state of Kansas. Like me, Marcy's first experiences of travel came in visiting the various parts of Kansas with her father. Some of her first guidebooks were co-written with him in the 1990s. From the beginning, Marcy has been a champion of the rural communities she writes about at both the narrative and the economic level. And to this day, she's based in rural Kansas, where she and her wife, Wendy, live in the small town of Inman in the central part of the state, where they run the Kansas Sampler Foundation, which promotes rural living and travel. Together, Marcy and I talk about what she calls the explorer spirit, which can help travelers see places that aren't typically considered tourist attractions. Marcy details the eight key things to look for in understanding rural places, including architecture, art, commerce, cuisine, customs, geography, history, and people. We talk about how to use the five senses to engage with rural places and how we can give back to those rural places as travelers. Our conversation begins with a discussion of how to approach a place with a spirit of true curiosity rather than a checklist of things to do. Let's listen in. From your experience as a traveler, what are some good questions to bring to a place to treat it as an inquiry rather than just a tourist experience with a list of things to check off? What questions do you ask of a place to sort of make that place reveal itself to you? One thing I like to do is talk to a few people, whether they're the post office clerk, the man on the bench in front of the barber shop, um, and quickly determine if it's a town that likes itself. Hmm. Because if it does, it guides me somehow. The best place to ask that question or to find that out is in a grocery store, if the town is lucky enough to have a grocery store. And so I'll ask the clerk, do locals shop here? Do you feel supported? And they'll go one of two ways. They'll either say, no, this community doesn't, you know, they buy their stuff at some other place. That tells me something. Or the other option is they'll say, this town is the most supportive town, we do great. And so that will be my first guide. Um, but what I ask myself is, I look at eight things that my dad and I figured out early on when we were doing our first guidebook, and a town didn't know how to answer the question from us, what do you have that we could put in a guidebook for free? So dad and I came up with this system um, of the eight elements. So I, you know, I don't even need a brochure. I just automatically look at their architecture, their art, their commerce, cuisine, customs, geography, history, and people. I keep those things in mind so that I don't get pigeonholed 
into something. And even if the town has almost nothing, there's a story about all those things that I can ask. Maybe the guy at the grain elevator, you know, can ask him the topic under one of those that I think might be most relevant to him or that might get him talking. I'm gonna stop real fast and my audience might need to know what a grain elevator is. Yes, and we're losing them. Some <laughs> would call them, what's that sentinel on the plains? What's that monument? But it's where the farmers will take their wheat after they've harvested on their own farm and they'll take it to the grain elevator and dump it to be stored or put on a railroad car. Yeah, and so the, it's really a big landmark in this landscape. In the, in the rural Kansas landscape, you see a town's grain elevator before you see anything else about that town. Yeah, so if you feel lost, you just look for the grain elevator, literally. Yeah. You know, you can see for miles, and so you know where you're going. So I, I want to jump also on those eight things, mm -hmm. and I want you to repeat them a little slower, because yes. uh, I think they're important, and this can apply to almost any small town in the world. Architecture, cuisine, people, things like that. So I'll, I'll have you repeat that, but I'm just thinking, Somebody could be in a little village in mm -hmm. South America or Africa or, mm -hmm. or Southern or Eastern Europe, and those same eight questions mm -hmm. apply. So this is key. So, so let's walk through those eight things. And at, for your listeners, mm -hmm. if you live in a large city, everything in your town also fits in those eight elements. Mm -hmm. So, okay, architecture, okay. the built environment, anything from a water tower to a grain elevator to a bridge, you know, to a residential structure, anything built. Art, so it can be yard art. It it can be sophisticated. Uh, commerce would be businesses past or present. You know, like Big Brutus, the coal shovel in Southeast Kansas would be commerce of the past. But I don't want people to forget that they should look for those little mom and pop shops or shops that are hidden or maybe aren't on Main Street and to support them but there's usually a story there. Um, cuisine, anything to do with food from the local independently owned restaurant to a church supper to an ethnic recipe. So pretty broad. Uh, customs is the fun one. It's, it's a tradition. It's actually anything that doesn't fit in the other categories. You know, it, it could be um, that there's a, um, a fountain on Main Street that kids jump in. You know, it can be, it can be the soda fountain. It, anything that's a ritual or a tradition. That one's sort of vague. Thursday night dances. Thursday night dances. Yeah. Okay. That's good. Walking to a restaurant on your uh, anniversary. Yeah, uh, for miles. That, that's a reference to my wife and me, and I think my podcast. Well, my podcast listeners don't know that that, that we walked to Lindsberg once. Sorry for this aside, listeners, but we do that every year now. My listeners don't know this. My wife and I walk about twenty miles to little small towns every every anniversary. And then the restaurant knows your custom. Yeah. So they accommodate that, which is so that's a perfect example for custom. Yeah. Geography is anything natural, from mm -hmm. the sky to the. Um, in Kansas, the 11 physiographic regions to trees, to wildflowers, to birds. Um, history, self-explanatory, and you can find it in so many ways. It's, you know, people think history might just be a museum, but go into a cemetery and your mind will be blown by what you find. Or, you know, history is just everywhere. Uh, people, 
So it could be the ethnic group that settled a town. It could be the present day people. We look for characters. Um, you know, people make a town, but what are those people all about that help shape the town? So it's important to interact with the locals and get a feel of that. So those are the eight. We call them our eight rural culture elements. And we've gone on to do the eight wonders of Kansas through those elements. So they have really been the bedrock of our work. I love that uh, simply because like I thought of Namibia, which is one of my favorite places in Africa. I traveled the Skeleton Coast and you have that, that the houses mm -hmm. they build, not just the houses that people dwell in, but the way they build their auto garages and stuff on the coast. A lot of the art uh, for women in traditional cultures in Namibia, it's body art. Mm -hmm. It's the way that they, they paint things. The geography is very much a desert. It's very much an, an oasis or not an oasis, a wasteland of shipwrecks, mm -hmm. right? So I love that this is a rural America Mm -hmm. uh, checklist, but it can apply, I think, almost anywhere in the world. And with what you just said, you're starting to give me a full view just using those elements. Mm. You know, you're not just f focused on one, but you, you know, you start to give me a full view if you answer, if you tell me a little something about each of those, I'll know kind of a summary of that town or country. Yeah, and you know, Marcy, I think we got past my first worry, which is that we'd start saying the word Kansas and my listeners would go to another podcast about mm -hmm. entertainment or politics mm -hmm. or something. But I think that's our universal theme there, that these mm -hmm. things that apply very much to rural Kansas can apply to rural or even non-rural mm -hmm. communities almost anywhere in the world. And if you make that the core of your inquiry, mm -hmm. if you're looking for the cuisine, if you what is this town's um, custom and culture, mm -hmm. um, what is the geography that makes this place unique, then you're getting past that expectations versus reality, that 10 point checklist mm -hmm. idea of what we think we're supposed to do, see as travelers versus what we actually can find as travelers. Yeah, if you um, just go to look at the famous things or, you know, I think even uh, the best travel guides sometimes forget to look at all those things, all of those eight things. So mm -hmm. it kind of broadens your view of what other people give you. And it allows the locals to expand your view as well by, you know, asking them about those things. Well, you said uh, some guidebooks don't always capture these elements, but you've been a guidebook writer for a long time. What have you learned since your number one guidebook that you were doing with your dad a long time ago versus the latest editions that are coming out? What, what um, procedures have you fine-tuned uh, in those years? Mostly how to talk to the locals mm. and that it's very, very important to know a town for the, for the remaining work that we do, which isn't just get people out and around the state. There's no way to really know a place until you're in that location. I mean, you can read about um, a town in a travel guide, but if you're not there talking to the locals and seeing the context, you know, we never wanted to write a guidebook without having been there uh, because it just makes all the difference in the world. And I, the other thing I've learned the most is how people love their hometown, no matter what it looks like. And you can only get that by being there and showing them the honor of coming to their place and letting them tell you their viewpoint. I, I see Kansas differently because I've heard it from the local perspective. 
Yeah, I think sometimes um, this plays out for global travelers in the context of hospitality. Mm -hmm. People will go to Sudan or mm -hmm. Chile and someone who's much poorer than them mm -hmm. will give them hospitality because it's an honor for them mm -hmm. to give hospitality mm -hmm. to this person from a long way away. And that, that, that guilt is a weird thing because they forget sometimes that it's exciting for local people to see the traveler as it is for travelers to see local people. Mm -hmm. And that it's a conversation. Mm -hmm. It's not a, an act of consumption. It's not mm -hmm. a, well, here, we're here to see some local color. It's like, well, we're here to have some conversations and learn something we didn't expect to learn. And in that is the explorer spirit, right? To go beyond what the main things are to see, to go beyond, that, that's where, for me, the excitement is to, you know, do the seeking. And, and when you seek those little explorey things, you find something in yourself as well. I wanted to answer your question with one more thing. What, one thing that was very important to learn is to not judge a town by driving. If you drive down a main street, some of these towns, you're just like, uh, wow, this town is dead. But what I learned, the question I've learned to ask is, what do I need to know about this town that I can't see by just driving downtown? And it's amazing what answers you'll get and, and the kind of, they look at you like, well, thank you for realizing there's more than our abandoned stores or crappy streets. There's more to our story and our dreams and our hopes. And you give them the chance to talk about dreams and hope rather than just that's how it looks. That's a great point. Like, what do people in a place want their place to be? Because mm -hmm. I think everybody has a more mm -hmm. optimistic place of what this place could be than is showing right now. Mm -hmm. And it's funny, I married a Sterling girl. We're just, mm -hmm. we're just up the road from Sterling. My first experience of Sterling was on a track meet. And I was a Wichita kid, Sterling, which is mm -hmm. this little runty town. And I sort of looked at it, I just thought, mm -hmm. there's nothing going on in Sterling. Mm -hmm. you know? Then I fell in love with the Sterling girl, and it's like, oh my God, this is an amazing little town. And a lot, and like, my in-laws are a big part of the, 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 the dreams of the future of that place. And so I think I was really humbled. In, 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 in Kansas, a state I already love, I fell in love with a girl from a small town that I judged <laughs> against my better intentions, and now I'm still getting to know that place, even though I've been there dozens of times. And you find out how involved people are, like your in-laws. Mm, yeah. You know, I think these little towns, you think, oh, there's nothing to do here, but people might retire to be with their kids from California or wherever, and they say, I'm busier than ever. I got involved in this and this, and I can make a difference this way. And, you know, it's just like people, if you're uh, sterling by choice, then you act that way. Mm. Like you're gonna be part of making sterling great. I don't just live here because I can't live anywhere else. I talk a lot in this podcast about first half versus second half of life values. And I think in the first half of life, people who grow up in small towns or even medium-sized cities like me, dream of getting out and then we have our adventures in other places. We forget their second half of life. Some people don't come back, but a lot of people do. And that's a really interesting part of this dynamic. It's an important part of small towns. It's not just the people who've left and made it, but the people who've left and made it and come back and been a part of that. And that's fun to see. We, we need to do a better job, and I think we are starting to in small towns when our kids graduate, um, 
we want them to go be whoever they are, but we want to let them know that, I mean, we need to show them that this town is worth fighting for. And should you decide to return, it's not because you couldn't make it somewhere else. It's because you're choosing to come back and help make us a good place to live. Yeah, there's a rhetoric on the coasts that sort of leads into my next talking point, but it's like you talk to somebody um, in these highly driven coastal environments and you tell them where you're, they're from and they're like, they ask some variation of the question, well, how did you get out? How did you escape? And that just seems like such a leading question, such a condescending question. Why can't I love the place I'm from even as I'm actively a part of this much more different urban coastal place? So I guess, one question that's very relevant probably to a lot of my listeners is that is the idea of of urban people going to rural areas there are blind spots that we all have as travelers um but often one of the primary ones is that a huge percentage especially of international travelers is that people come from wealthy cities and they have the the resources and the privilege to be able to travel and maybe they're looking for their blind spots but they forget one of the main ones is there's urban assumptions. Most, almost all of our cultural assumptions assume a city. And in fact, I don't live in a city, I live in a rural area. And so I bristle a little bit when somebody says, what, where are you from? And I mention a county and they're like, no, where are you from? It's like, I don't live in a town, you know? So I guess one thing I wanna think out loud about is what kind of blind spots, probably unintentional offenses or microaggressions as the kids say these days, do urban people bring to rural environments globally, but we'll use Kansas as a point mm -hmm. of reference, that they should really think more about if they wanna be, if they wanna honor the places they visit? You know, they uh, make assumptions of what they hear through the media or, so we're backward, we're conservative, we're all those things. Um, and those things are there, but when I travel around the state, I just see people who love their town and are working there. Uh, um, one assumption that will be true, when if you go into a cafe and they don't know you, they will stare at you. But um, that's just because they're not used to people from the outside coming to their small town. We do something called the Big Kansas Road Trip. We've done it for five years, and I'll, I'll just use it in as, as an example for your question, but we choose three counties to showcase and invite people in for four days. And, and invite people from all over the world or country? Uh, or? Yeah, mm -hmm. anybody, okay. Okay. you know? And I mean, this year we had eight states, people from eight states come, but mostly from our urban areas. I think they want to come to rural when they know they're invited, when they know it's okay. I've heard that people from urban are scared of the big spaces. They are uncomfortable with um, a downtown of one or two blocks. They're not sure how they should act. You know, there's, there's, it's the same as rural going to urban. They're uncomfortable. And I, I think rural in most places is really good at, if you're yourself, you know, then you'll match them just being themselves. They love that you're interested in them. So I think the assumption might be that, well, these rural people will just 
look at me as a novelty. And you know what, there might be some of that, but you can break through pretty quickly if you just be genuine with each other. What, what do you see that, how would you answer that question? Well, often I see urban people come, they sort of have a mono cause or a monocultural way of what, they're, what, what they think they're supposed to see. And so their first question, and I'm astonished that this, how pervasive this is, is where are the Republicans? Oh, yes. And who has a gun? And it's like, can you ask people what their kids do for fun? Where they, where's a good place to eat? Um, how's the weather been? Like there's so many entry questions that are less presumptive and condescending than, than politics and, and, and politics, you know, that, that um, and I think sometimes people have good intentions, like they want to come and fire a gun in Kansas. And it's like, why do you want to fire a gun in Kansas? There's shooting ranges in New York, right? And so I think they have a very mm -hmm. strong sense of what this place is supposed to represent, and they come here at the expense of what the place actually is. It's not mm -hmm. inquiry, it's trying to set off, even if they think they're being open-minded, they are, they think, well, I'm gonna find something human about this mm -hmm. horrible conservative person, when in fact it's like, well, how do you even know this person is conservative? You know, how do you, have you had the Somali food in southwestern Kansas? You know, th there's certain things we assume, we have these very monolithic assumptions of what a rural place has to give us, whereas some parts of, the, of Kansas will have Burmese immigrant communities, some have Czech mm -hmm. immigrant communities, which are much longer than that. And so I think it, it's just, in a general sense, using that mediated perspective where you come in and you sort of think you know or you think you're supposed to know what you're going to find, and it's, I'm either going to find it or not. And one thing that I've complained about on this podcast is before is that a really good friend came from the East Coast and said, do people here think they're more American than us on the East Coast? And it's like, did somebody, what did, some, what did somebody say? Well, nobody had said that, but there's this perception that that's how people believe but it's not borne out, I've never had, I've, I've actually, but I have a very cosmopolitan global friend group, but I've heard more big urban coastal people um, communicating broad generalizations that are unfair towards the rural direction than rural people saying nasty things about coastal people. And so I don't wanna to be too um, you know, provincial in my own, standing up for my home state, but I just want to make this a conversation that's more multipolar uh, and make the rural voices a part of that. And so I guess that's just something I'm thinking out loud about. Yeah, I, I think what bothers me, I hear from a lot of um, reporters from the coast, maybe they want to focus on Kansas when something controversial happens. And I think that bothers me that they think we're all one way. In fact, we're not. And sometimes you can't even tell if someone's, what political stripe they are when you go into a small town because it's not what they think about every day. It's yeah. just, I'm trying to survive in my area. You know, I'm just trying to know my, local, my neighbors. And so, and the other thing is, don't think a guy that's wearing the overalls might not be the wealthiest guy in town. You know, so, don't judge, think about the eight elements, and just enjoy getting to know a town rather than thinking the town has to accommodate you.
try to get to know it, and then pretty soon they'll be inviting you to see their special collection of canned pickles or something. You know, if you're friendly, they'll be friendly. Yeah. Now, my dad um, is a scientist, a science teacher. He's a Wichita kid. Wichita's the biggest town in Kansas. And as an environmental educator for years, he realized that some of the smartest people about the landscape were hunters and fishermen and farmers. And, and we forget that. I think there's certain urban assumptions that we have to, we use a certain vernacular to talk about something like sustainable living or environmental um, awareness, when in fact, people who live in rural environments see things that we, I, I'm sort of a city kid, I'm slowly becoming a rural one, that we don't even see. You know, they, they see the owl in the tree across, you know, 300 <laughs> yards away. And they know how amazing that owl is because they have a sort of a relationship mm -hmm. with that. And it's something that your first time visitor won't, maybe not see at all until the guy hands them a pair of binoculars. Yeah, that's so beautiful. Or if people stay with us, they hear the owl, they hear the coyotes, they see the, um, the lightning storm, you know, they feel the wind. And it's so different than just reading about it. And it's, yeah, we live it. It's like Daniel Boone, you know, why did he know the, the woods so well? Because he lived in it. Yeah. And I, I think we are humble about what we know because we don't maybe think it's great stuff, you know, like it's rocket science and we downplay the basics that we know. So I don't know, just I think getting to know a town, the people, if you look at it as an adventure, rather than a contest of whose lifestyle is gonna up the other ones. That's where the adventure explorer thing comes in, just make it part of the adventure. I love that you mentioned so many senses. You were talking about the sounds of the owl and the feel of the wind. You know, it's not just sightseeing, mm -hmm. but there's, there's four other senses that we can bring. And sometimes I think in this hyper-mediated world where we are competing against people we don't know on social media about places we've never been and our own opinions about things that we sort of know but not really, um, showing up counts. Mm -hmm. That's why travel is important. And domestic travel in places like rural Kansas is, is as important as international travel that is more obviously cross-cultural. And so, it, yeah, it feels like like the five senses are a great starting point. If you're in a place and you're, start, you're sort of passing judgment, but you, you've only smelled two things, maybe you can find some other things to, to smell. So I'm wondering about some other strategies that you might bring in as an explorer. You've used that word several mm -hmm. times. So uh, let's mm -hmm. dig into the idea of explorer, not just a white guy with a mustache in 1867, but mm -hmm. everyday people going to places that are new to them. How do you become a, an explorer and find things that you didn't expect to find? I think first it's kind of uh, nurturing that spirit in you that's willing to look for the nuances that maybe you're tired of just, here's a mountain, here's the ocean, and you want something a little more, I mean, not that those are, I mean, those are huge stories uh, beside the grand visual, but I think having to dig for something to find uh, like we went to every one of the 627 incorporated cities in Kansas to research for two guidebooks because we didn't want to assume that a town didn't have something or it did. Um, in New, Alma, New Almalo, in Norton, Kansas, I, 
if it's incorporated, it probably has less than 50 people. You go in, there's this grand church, St. Joseph's Church looks, I mean, you see churches um, dotting the prairie, but you look up in the cross at the very top, it looks like it's on a pinhead because the base of it has fallen off. How is it standing? And is that fascinating to people? To an explorer, it is. You look for those nuances. You visit with the locals. You feel good about spending money, knowing you're making a difference. You dare to do dirt, which is our way of saying, get off the main roads, but surely no, don't go there when it's muddy. Um, being an explorer is sort of a um, state of mind. It's almost spiritual because you're willing to go to places. Maybe I remember dad would say, kids, let's, we're going west today. We're gonna just get on this road and go as far west as we can. And so I think it's about not following a brochure really. It's just wanting to see where the road takes you and where what your explorer spirit can do with the space that you enter. We're, we're sitting, what's this place? Is this just the Kansas Sampler Foundation? This is the Kansas Sampler Center. Kansas Sampler Center. And I swore I saw a Nicodemus poster here. Right there. It's, it's, it's behind yeah. me. Mm -hmm. So I would be talking away from the mic if I pointed out. But my wife and I went to Nicodemus because it's a legendary uh, town mm -hmm. that was settled by formerly uh, enslaved black Americans. and. It is a remarkable place. Um, and actually, if you go to the Museum of African American History in the Smithsonian in, in Washington, D.C., it talks a lot about mm -hmm. Nicodemus, Kansas. My wife and I went there. We went to the Interpretive Center. We learned a ton. Then we went a few towns over to a place called Damar. And it has this amazing cathedral that looks sort of like the cathedrals you see in France. And we looked, and their, their high school mascot is the Demartians. And we realized that around the same time that formerly enslaved black Americans were settling Nicodemus, French Canadians were settling the town of Damar. Mm -hmm. Both towns are a little bit dry, there's not much left mm -hmm. there, but what an interesting connection that it's not just about formerly enslaved people creating a dream and working hard, but it's about people from all over North America were, were, were sort of descending on this part of Western Kansas. And so we learned a lesson we didn't expect to, to learn that day, which is what it must have been like for these French Canadians who probably didn't expect to find black American neighbors just mm -hmm. up the road, you know, shopping in the same markets or whatever they bought their things for. So that was a, you explaining what you just did about this, the explorer spirit. We almost accidentally, by making a connection between two seemingly unrelated places, um, that was just a fun moment my wife and I had in Kansas. And, oh, you got me excited with what you just said because it's the timetable. We sometimes forget about, you know, thinking French Canadians were settling here around maybe the similar time of the black exodusters. And, and then that gets really exciting. And to think about the St. Joseph's Church that you mentioned, how did they build that? That one was in 1918, I think. I mean, to build this massive stone church without all the, you know, forklifts and everything that makes it easier is just phenomenal. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's so much to think about in comparison, contrast, the similarities. Um, and, and to think of those things adds to the explorer journey, you know, it's, 
It's this touches on one of the points you brought up because you have customs, cuisine, geography, and but history is one. Had we not been looking laterally for historical connections, we wouldn't have realized that hey, these French Canadian settlers probably interacted in a surprising way with these black American settlers at the same time in history. And suddenly we had an imaginative relationship to the place that we didn't expect to have. I think so much of travel and tourism is an imaginative space. Mm -hmm. oh. You know, that you, you go anywhere in the world, you go, you go to the, 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 the pyramids of Giza and you imagine what it must have been like 5,000 years ago. I think it's the questions you ask yourself too. And, and that's part of exploring is to ask those questions because then you can ask the guide or the local. And, and I think they like that when it's, it's, you know, you're thinking deeper and they might tell you about their grandparent or great grandparent that did this or that interaction uh, with somebody else. And um, the phrase, enjoy the journey is so perfect for exploring because it's not just about getting to some destination, but enjoying all these nuance, explorey things in between, like, I mean, when Dad and I would go doing our first guidebook, I'd ask him a million questions. And one was that row, that fence right there, they don't have all metal fence posts. Why is there a wooden fence post like every fourth one? And he'd have an answer. Or why are the cows, you know, facing this way? Or, you know, just those things that seem really trivial, but there's often a really interesting answer that changes how you look at everything. So enjoy the journey, meaning don't discount all those miles before you get to the big thing. Oh, absolutely. My dad is a science teacher, and so one thing he taught me when we were out in western Kansas, it's like, Boot Hill is okay in Dodge City, but look at that grass. You know, it may, may look like short grass, but those roots go down five times as mm -hmm. deep. And you know what's underneath those roots? Fish bones. This used to be an ocean, right? And so my father may have had a different approach. He might have not have known that fits the answer to the fence, mm -hmm. the fence post question because he didn't come from mm -hmm. a farm family. My mom did. But he knew about the geophysical mm -hmm. history. He knew, he knew millions of years of geographical, geo, geological history mm -hmm. in, in, in Kansas. What, by the way, what is the answer to that fence post question? Um, to, um, it's like a lightning rod. Okay. I mean, think of the cows had their head through the fence. Okay. And lightning hits. I, th I think this is pretty accurate. And then, you know, the wooden or the, honestly, I can't remember which one is the, the one that settles the lightning, but it's, there's a reason for it. And you look at the electrical, the telephone lines, it just, you start getting all these questions. Well, it's funny that you brought up fence posts. And even in Kansas, there's an expect, tourist expectation of fence posts. And so in my head, I was thinking, she's going to talk about fence post limestone. She's going to talk about yeah. the Smoky Hills and how farmers who didn't have trees made stone fence posts. But then you surprise me by talking <laughs> about something that I don't know the answer to, which is what delineates putting a metal versus a wood fence post right. here. And I think this is... No question as a traveler is a dumb question. Mm -hmm. And the dumber the question feels, mm -hmm. probably the better it is to ask of somebody local, right? Yeah. Oh, and we did guidebook research sometime, though. Even locals don't know. Hmm. And, and so um, there was this kind of smallish building in Cuba, um, Cuba limestone, Kansas. Cuba. 
with this kind of fancy door. And we would ask locals, what, what is that? What is that? And they, so then it became a game for them to figure out what it was. It turned out that the bank had been torn down and what was left was the vault and that small stone building with the fancy door was actually the vault in the bank that was now gone, but the vault, vault remained. And it kind of stirred this conversation for locals among themselves too, because they hadn't, you know, it was just this building that's there. You know, you see it all the time, so you don't see it. Yeah. And it was really exciting for all of us when uh, Dale at the grocery store figured out he knew the answer, but it took to finding Dale to find the answer. But these these colors you see on the map, your dad would know this. We're looking at a map of Kansas. Yeah, right now. Kansas is not flat. It has 11 physiographic regions, and a good explorer will almost be able to feel when they go from the Smoky Hills into a uh, better one is, the it's the cusping, you know the Arkansas River lowlands into the high plains, you, you can almost, without looking at a map, you almost know. And that's what an explorer does. He's, he, she is aware of all your senses. Mm. And the vegetation tells you so much. And, and then you're never bored again in your life if you've got that explorer look spirit. It's so exciting. One, one note I wrote to myself when you were talking about all this is seeing places as mysteries to be solved. Sometimes if, a pla if something about a place seems completely baffling to you, then congratulations, you're the Sherlock Holmes of mm -hmm. this weird detail of the place. And I think the fun thing is when you ask a question that local people have stopped asking themselves and suddenly it becomes team effort yes. to say, what, what caused this? What, what was the deal with this? Yeah, and it's it's real exciting, and and that's when, as an outsider, you get respect, because you're seeing something that they forgot about was part of their story, and it helps fill in their story, and and I think that's part of it that we forget sometimes that visitors or explorers, travelers can gain respect from the locals, which is a really great feeling, and and understanding how buying spices in the little grocery store with one aisle means a lot because spices don't move well. Hmm. Hmm. And, and when you talk to grocery stores, you find out that for the wholesale truck to even stop, they have to buy $10,000 worth of groceries a week in a town that's got 400 people. So how does that work or how do they get groceries? So that's one of those questions, how do you keep a small grocery store open? And the answers to that one are worth a whole podcast. Well, it is, and, and, and I think some of the condescending urban attitudes are like, why do all these people shop at Dollar General? I go to these towns and Dollar General is the only place you can get things. And it's like, do you think that was a local decision to bring in Dollar General? Do you not think that there's a corporate strategy that has nothing to do with small town America? that has imposed Dollar General, and it ties into the idea, I mean, this is another podcast. It comes into the, like, produce is more expensive because it's perishable and you can't keep it on the shelf forever. And if you have a lower order with the wholesale truck, you get the low end of the produce. I mean, it's, it's you know, some urban folks might go to a small town and say, oh, what a, you know, your store is so small. 
But to the locals, it's we have a store. You know, we don't care that it's one aisle. We have a store. And we had to work hard to get this, to keep it open. Please buy spice. This has been Deviate with Rolf Potts. More about everything that was just mentioned, including information about Marcy Penner's travel guidebooks and rural outreach projects, can be found in the show notes at rolfpotts.com deviate. And as always, you can contact me with insights or questions at deviate at rolfpotts.com. This episode was produced by Cedar Van Tassel, who also does the theme music. Thanks for listening, and I hope you tune in for future episodes of Deviate with Rolf Potts.